Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today as we resume our teaching in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Mitch Pridgen continues his sermon on the centrality of Jesus Christ in the gospel. When we speak of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ together this way, it is of extreme importance we avoid the error that some have fallen into. And I wanted strongly to reiterate this, that Paul is not saying, Paul is not implying in the slightest that Jesus Christ was merely a divine man nor, on the other hand, was he a human God. You'll recall last week I said, remember who Paul is writing to. Rome was an interesting place. Rome was kind of, well, obviously it was the, the capital of the empire. Rome had pretty much conquered the entire world at that time, its known world. And its, its strength and power reached far. Its tentacles went deep and went far. That's a history lesson our president needs to be given. Reached very, very, very far. In fact, it was called the Peace or Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. Where they had, and they were a very eclectic people. In other words, they were able to bring all kinds of different ideas and things together. And form their beliefs and ideas from all these different things that they were being subjected to. In fact, the, 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 the emperor of Rome believed himself to be what? A human God. A man upon whom divinity rested. And so Paul is saying, I want you to understand right off the bat that that's not what I'm talking about here. God, Jesus Christ is not merely a divine man, nor a human God. Rather, Jesus Christ is what we have come to know, theologically in our understanding, the God-man. Now, what does that mean? Another way of saying it, in other words, He is fully God and fully man. Remember I gave you the the illustration of don't seeing Him as merely 50% man and 50% God, and therefore you have 100% but that he is 100% man and at the same time 100% God. In Christian theology, as I taught you last week, this is referred to as the hypostatic union and and hypostasis or the hypostatic union that we speak of in theology. It is basically, it it was narrowed after the the Council of Chalcedon in in the 4th century where that council decided on the the reality that, Father, that God the Father and God the Son were of the same essence. That idea of that essence developed over the centuries in the, to the church where not merely was it believed as it being true, and indeed it is true, that the Father and the Son are of the same essence, but it came to represent the hypostasis, began to, began to represent the notion that Christ possessed two complete natures, one God and one man, fully human and full deity, the union of the two natures. So Jesus has two, and remember I I didn't say had, as if somehow that changed. 
Jesus has two complete natures. One human, one fully human, and one fully divine. And what the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches us is that these two natures are united in one person. And that person is the God-man, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. The human and divine are joined together in Him. When Jesus walked this earth, He walked this earth as fully man and at the same time fully God. Never, never, ever, ever did he lay aside his deity or lay aside his divinity. Nor since his resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of God has he laid aside his humanity. He, to this very day, is fully man and fully God. And we will see him in his full humanity and understand his full deity. The same Jesus that walked the earth. The same Jesus that the disciples handled after the resurrection. The same Jesus that was ascended into heaven is the very same Jesus that will come again, the same Jesus we will see. What a glorious thought. What a glorious thought. You say, Pastor, I don't know whether I can wrap that m- my mind around that right now. Well, you know what? You might not be able to fully in this life, but I promise you that the moment that you see Him, it'll all come together. You'll understand fully, even as Paul says, you are fully known. All of that will come together. Just a brief heads up to help you concerning... And I got a little asterisk by this, which means I was wondering, well, 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 interject this. But I'm thinking that, you know, it probably affects most of us that are in here, except those who may have visited my house lately and notices that there is a, no, a, a sign on the side of my door now. But just a brief heads up concerning the smiley face witnesses that stand at your door on Saturday mornings. They totally, by the way, they totally reject the idea that Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. In fact, simply put, they believe that the Son, and they refer, they use the terminology. Here's the fallacy of equivocation. They use the same words that we use, but those words mean something completely different. And so they will use the term Son of God. But you'll notice that sometimes in their literature, most of the time, if I'm not mistaken, that son is not capitalized per se. And so they deny that the son is, is, is fully human and fully divine, that they believe that the son is a heavenly being that existed before the rest of creation, but was brought into existence by God the Father. And therefore, he could not be God himself. They take that... Their, their translation of the word begotten to mean created or to have been made so that there was some point before all of his other creation that God made this son. And so therefore he cannot be the same as God or be equal with God being that he is a created being. And by the way, that's not the, what the word begotten in the Greek means at all anyway. They totally twist it. In fact, the, the first warning flag that should go up in anyone's mind concerning that is, is if, that historic, if the historic texts of 2,000 years of the New Testament 
and then you've got an additional 3,000 years of the Old Testament. If, if, if those if the historical texts say 3,500 to 5,000 years of text are, are not sufficient to prove your point and you have to rewrite your own, that should, that should speak volumes. You're telling me that all the historic tr- manuscripts and transcripts and translations that we have, you cannot, you cannot rectify your belief system by the ancient text. So what you do about 100 years ago or less, you rewrite your own Bible. Does that not raise red flags in your mind? And then you even name it the New World Translation. Warning. Warning. The Watchtower organization, known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, are nothing but modern Arians. And I don't have time this morning, nor will I take the time to do that. But Arius was a bishop of Alexandria in 8325. And what Arius, in fact, amazingly, Arius had a lot of influence. And even after, at Nicaea, when Arius's doctrine was declared heretical, it still remained popular in the early church in some circles. And so there are those who fought. Athanasius was an example of those who fought tenaciously to protect this biblical truth that Jesus Christ was not a created being, that he was of one essence with the Father, and he was fully God and fully man at the very same time. And so you had the councils of the early church that supported that. But not only did Arius deny the deity of the person of the Son, but he also denied the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so you'll notice that even today the Jehovah's Witnesses will speak of the Spirit little s as a divine influence, but not a person. And the Son is a created being and not equal with the Father. Just a quick lesson on some of the cults. But in verse 3, let's go back to our text. In verse 3, the the phrase descended from David is something I want to make sure that we pay close attention to because it has tremendous significance. The prophets, as we're told earlier in our introduction here, the prophets had prophesied very clearly and very succinctly since the time of David They had prophesied that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. That was the line through which the prophets said this Messiah will come. Every time we've gone through a series of sermons on on Christmas messages, have we not seen that? Have we not seen that? Certainly we have. And remember in verse 2, Romans 1, Paul had already informed his readers that he, speaking of God, had promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures the coming of the Messiah. Prophecies which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, I know many of you have probably over the years, if you haven't, it's a very good book. It's an older book. It's a thin book, but it's very informative. Called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. One of the early apologetic books after the Jesus movement in the late or the mid late 70s. But what a tremendous book written. And now he's written many other books in regards to that matter. But in, in that book, he actually deals with the list of prophecies and, and, and he tells you exactly, and he categorizes them for you. I pulled the book, one of the books out yesterday and began to look at it once again. He categorized the hundreds of prophecies 
that were clearly and succinctly given that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I love one of the illustrations that he uses, and I may not get it exactly right, but the, but the context of it, the gist of it will be right. He said that the odds makers, whoever they are, have said that for any person to have fulfilled even just a small number of prophecies in the complete and full manner in which Jesus fulfilled those prophecies would be the odds of this. If you were to take the state of Texas and fill it with half dollars, six feet high, take it and shake it, having marked one of the coins and the first time pull that coin out of the pile. And yet, rather than just being a few prophecies, hundreds of prophecies fulfilled specifically and succinctly. And so that, that's exactly what, what Paul's referring to here. The, the prophets have told you, they have prophesied, that the coming of the Messiah was going to happen, and then all of a sudden we see Jesus fulfilling those prophecies. So both in the Old and New Testaments often refer to the son of David. And as we well know, David had many sons, but only one succeeded him on the throne, and that was Solomon. Now I want you to hold carefully this, because I went back yesterday and I rewrote some things because as I began to reflect on what I had prepared a week or so ago to, to share with you and kind of going in, in order here, I'm going, okay, I don't want to create more confusion or questions than necessary. I certainly don't want to do that. So I kind of revamped this and rewrote this and I want to make it very clear. So I'm going to move slowly. We know that in the Bible that in the Old Testament and New Testament, the term son of David is used over and over again. And, and we see that even in the New Testament, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as they were waving their fig branches, as they were throwing their fig leaves before him, what were they declaring? What were they calling him? The son of David. So we see that in the Old Testament used by the prophets, we see it used in the New Testament in regards to Jesus Christ. However, you go back historically, though David had many sons, he had one particular son, Solomon, who succeeded him on the throne. And when the Bible speaks of the son of David with a little s, it often means someone greater, or uppercase s, I'm sorry, it often means someone greater than Solomon or any other descendant of David. So we know, okay, when he speaks of the sons of, of David or son of David, it may be in context addressing a particular son of David. But oftentimes it means someone greater than Solomon or any of the other sons of David. The term son of David with a capital S became a term used for the Messiah. And we know that from the New Testament that Christ is called the son of David. This is significant. This is significant. Because it reveals to us God's faithfulness. Listen, church. It reveals to us God's faithfulness to David and the word given to him prophetically. Hold your place in Romans and turn with me to 2 Chronicles. And I'll give you time to get there. In 2 Kings, Kings, Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles. I'm sorry, that's a Chronicles. Sorry about that. How about 2 Samuel? 
That's a better. I was, I've got Chronicles is one down further. I've got to, I'm going to be there in just a moment. But look at 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want us to look at verses, actually let's read verses 12 through 13 of chapter 7. But I want us to look specifically at verses 13 and 16. Now this is, the, the prophet Nathan has come to David and is prophesying. He says, when your days are fulfilled, verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Note the word forever. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now pause for a moment and look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Notice the word forever again. And then in the last part of that verse, your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you look at these verses, here's what we know about Old Testament prophecy. Oftentimes, when prophecy was given in the Old Testament, it was given with dual application. Now, let me explain that to you. It was often given with an immediate meaning, an immediate application. And then oftentimes when it was given, it would be given not only with an immediate meaning or a short-term or short-coming application, it was also given with a prophetic long-term application, something that is not yet. In fact, how do we know that? Well, I won't take the time this morning to do that, but we could go to the New Testament and we could look at the New Testament writers, especially Peter and Paul as well, and we could see them taking application from Old Testament prophecies and showing their fulfillment in New Testament application. So when you read them, you go, okay, you go back and read the Old Testament text. You go, oh, yeah, there was an immediate application to that prophecy that was given. And yet Peter tells us there was also a far-reaching application to that prophecy that was given. So some of those prophecies had meanings immediately. And then many of those prophecies were messianic, meaning that they were going to come to fulfillment in the future. And we know that in Christ. So when you read prophecy, that's the way you need to read it. Because if you read right on down, I didn't skip it on purpose. I skipped it to come back to it. It says in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. We know by, by, by all the word of God's testimony, Jesus as a son never committed sin. And never needed any discipline. But then, okay, but if you look at it from the context of being short-term, long-term, Solomon, who this has a short-term application to, actually did get God's discipline, did he not? Certainly he did. And yet the long-term application of this pertaining to Christ 
was fulfilled. And we'll see that as we go through this in just a moment. The immediate application or short-term application has to do with David's son Solomon. We know that Solomon did indeed build the temple, for example. David was not allowed to build it. David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man with blood on his hands. David had been a man of war. And so while David was gathering all the materials to build the house, at the end of his life, God says, by the way, thank you for gathering all the materials. This is a Pridgen paraphrase. Thank you for gathering all the materials, but you will not be the one who builds the house. One of your descendants, one of your own offspring will build the house. He'll build me that temple and his throne will be forever. Now, that's just not an immediate application There's a powerfully prophetic future application to those words that Nathan, through the Spirit, gave to David. So we know that Solomon did indeed build the temple, and he did indeed occupy his father David's throne. But we also know that there was a long-range application as well. In verse 13 and verse 16, I told you to underline these words The use of the word forever, we're told forever three times. And so we ask ourselves the question, if we know our Bible history, we ask ourselves the question, did did indeed that happen? Was Solomon's throne established forever? Or was there one to come after him through whom his throne would be established forever? forever, who was himself the descendant from David. So from the Bible, we learn that in regards to Solomon, listen very carefully, his throne was not established forever. One of Solomon's descendants was cursed by God with a curse that took the throne away from him, and not only away from him, but took the throne away from the rest of Solomon's descendants. Look at Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah with me for a second. In Jeremiah chapter 22, I want you to see this. In Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Read this with me. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country you were, where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot of vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they did not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this down, this man down is childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring, listen, 
None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling Judah again in Judah. Coniah, by the way, is a shortened form of the name Jeconiah. And that term, his word, his name was probably shortened as an act of, or a show of contempt for the wicked person that he was. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, we see that Jeconiah did have seven sons. But the point here is not the, the fact that he had the seven sons, is that they, the, of those seven sons, the prophecy was fulfilled in that not a one of those sons ever occupied the throne. So in other words, with Jeconiah, Solomon's line of reigning on the throne ended. Uh-oh, we got a problem. Where, how then did Jesus come to occupy that throne? This is why Jesus, and listen church, this is why Jesus could not be the physical offspring of Joseph. Do you know that, think about this, at the time of the birth of Jesus, Joseph was rightfully the king of Israel. By virtue of his lineage. But was not. Was a carpenter in Nazareth. Why? Because of this prophecy in Jeremiah. So you ask yourself the question. Why why is that important? Because Jesus, had he been a descendant of Joseph, could have not rightly fulfilled the prophecy to have occupied the throne of his father David. In fact, Joseph is referred to as not as the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary. And, and Joseph was of, of Solomon and Jeconiah's land. Uh, line, I'm sorry. If Jesus had been a physical descendant of Joseph, Joseph, he could not have possessed the, th- the throne of his father. David. He could not be the promised Messiah. His right to the throne, however, did not come from Joseph. Listen very carefully. The right to the throne came from his mother's side. Because not only was Joseph a descendant of David, but Mary was a descendant of David. In Mary's line was Nathan, who was Solomon's older brother, who actually should have been given the throne, but Solomon was in fact given the throne. His right to the throne came from his mother's side. By avoiding Solomon's and Jeconiah's line, Jesus was both legally and royally qualified to fulfill the prophecy of the throne established forever. So, the prophecy that we read in 2 Samuel in regards to that descendant of David who will occupy his throne forever is Jesus Christ. You have been listening to Crosswalk Radio, and you can find out more information at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. Thanks for listening, and please tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.